First Chronicles uh, in your Bible tonight. It's the privilege of old men to repeat their stories. It's, it's more than their privilege, it's their responsibility. Did you know that? Because it's part of God's plan that there would be a time when Grandpa's not out there on the porch anymore and his story should ring in your heart. This is the way God wanted things to pass down from one generation to another. My grandfather, uh, Shipley, my mom's dad, had a little habit. I have a couple of his Bibles. And uh, his habit, he was one of those three-time-a-week churchgoer type people, uh, the, the length of his Christian life, uh, until he could not get out of the house anymore at all. And he was taken to an institution. Um, he would have been there uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And he would have been three-quarters of the way back on the right. And if he wasn't there, there was something seriously wrong. He carried with him uh, his Bible, and this is a little habit that he had. Um, when somebody would preach on a text of the Scripture, he would write their name in the margin and he would date it. So if I would preach and I would preach another message on the same text, he would come to me and say, you repeated the message. And I would say, no, Grandpa, I didn't repeat the message. I had this, another message from the same text. And so we had some interesting discussions that way. He, my grandfather had this little saying, and I've mentioned this to you before, but I'm getting old myself so I can repeat myself if I want to. And that is, he had this little saying, remember whose you are. It's what he would say when we would gather and pray. Grandma did most of the talking, but when we would gather and pray, it was always Grandpa who would pray. We would hold hands there in a little breezeway on the greenhouse on Otten Road. And then my Grandpa, we would all hold hands, and then he would just quietly and very firmly with conviction just say, remember whose you are. He wanted us to remember that we belong to the Lord. And he wanted us to remember and never forget that we belong to him and to Grandma and that was always a beautiful and kind of warm sentiment that stayed in my heart and still does to this day. My grandfather had a little dial indicator service before everything went digital. And uh, he had little pens and cards and so forth in his car. And anything he printed up, he would always put these initials, R-W-Y-A, remember whose you are. I couldn't really think of a better way to embed into your heart tonight the real issue here in First Chronicles than this idea God wants us to remember whose we are. And when we forget whose we are, we are in critical condition spiritually. We are in critical condition spiritually when we forget whose we are. But when we remember whose we are, then we can take back ground that we lost one day. And this is the message of First Chronicles. When we forget whose we are, we're in critical condition. We're in danger of forgetting as the people of God and the reason that God would give us books of history in general is, to remember, is for us to remember who, who we are. But the specific audience that this book was penned for was a group that would desperately need to reclaim some lost territory. And to do that, God would give them a memory of who they were. The book takes a religious and spiritual viewpoint rather than a political or historical viewpoint. It is not just a, a writing of history, but it is, a, if you will, a religious tract. In other words, it's writing for a spiritual purpose, obviously. It toggles back and forth between wide-angle shots and close-ups, between narrative and genealogies and inventories, which are really kind of interesting. Interesting, you can break his 29 chapters, as you know, because I'm sure you got it all read this afternoon, right? And chapters 1 through 9 are various genealogies, and we'll talk about those in a moment. They cover a thousand years of Israel's history. This is a book of the Bible that has the broadest historical span of any book in the Bible. Chapters 1 through 9 cover a thousand years of Israel's history. And chapters 10 through 29 cover about 33 years of time. 
Chapter 1 through 9, of course, is genealogy. It's ancestry. It's primarily the tribes of Israel. If we were to go through there and you just read the headings of your Bible, you would see that the genealogies are mostly the tribes, genealogies of the tribes of Israel and some other significant characters in the history of Israel. In chapters 10 through 29, of course, it's history, it's activity. So you have genealogy, ancestry, history, activity, and these two sections of First Chronicles. The first nine are what? Genealogy. And 10 through 29 is history or activity. In chapters 1 through 9, you have a various angles on the royal line of David. And in chapters 10 through 29, the reign of David. I have a slide for this. I just want you to see it all in one sweep. In particular, there, chapters 10 through 28, and just notice how this focuses on David. David's rise to the throne in chapters 10 through 12. The acquisition of the Ark of the Covenant and returning that to Jerusalem and institution of worship in chapters 13 through 17. The victories of David in chapters 18 through 20 and the preparation, his preparation for the temple, his spirit-led preparation for the building of the temple, which he wouldn't do, but that Solomon would do in chapters 21 through 27. Notice the broad range there. There's a lot of this that's about worship. A lot of this is about the building of the temple and the organization, the high-level organization of God's worship. Interesting. And then David's last days. It ends in a flourish in chapters 28 through 29. I feel like this, and don't you, when you really get into the Word of God and you really study it, at first, you know, especially when you look at nine chapters of genealogies, you're tempted to think, okay, what's this all about? But the more you dig into the Word of God and the more that you study the Word of God, the more your heart is warm. It's like stirring the fire. Heard a story of an elderly lady that I knew. I didn't know her when she was young. She wasn't always old. But I knew her when she was older, and she was just a dear, godly old saint. Her name was Phyllis. Love this lady. She's with the Lord now. And uh, we had some contact with her grandson. Her grandson said, when I would go over to my grandma's house, she would fix me anything I wanted to eat. I love ladies like that, don't you? Can you say amen to that? She would fix me anything she wanted. (laughs) It was kind of a mild amen. I know you felt that with much more conviction than that. People like that are just a blessing, aren't they? I just sort of feel like as a pastor, I go back and I start reading and I look at the menu and I look at the ingredients and I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to taste good. This is going to be good for the soul. They're going to go home filled and ready to go. I hope that's true with you. I'd like to believe that. I don't know about my own skill and my own ability. I do know this. The Word of God is what we need to nourish our souls. In First Chronicles, we're going to go circling back over territory that we've already covered historically from Second Samuel and from First and Second Kings. Now, why would the two books cover the same material? Does this ever? Do you ever wonder why in the Bible do you have two books that cover the same material? I'll get into that question. I'll answer that question in a moment. But for now, though, understand the key characters. We never want to look at any part of the Bible, and particularly here, without recognizing that the key character is no human being. The key character is God. God is at the center of everything. He's the center of human history and the center of every individual life. And he always was and he always will be. God is at the center. And in our God-ignoring age, it's easy to forget that God is at the center. But in the book of God, God is at the center. And you have human characters, of course, Saul going off the scene, David coming on, Solomon, Levites, priests, and temple officials, lots of temple officials. And you see the grand organization of the temple in this book. The key doctrines, of course, that are covered are obviously the covenant, as you would normally see in most Old Testament books, the nature of God, worship and obedience. These are just key doctrines that you'll see there. And I believe the key verses can be read in 1 Chronicles 17. Turn to that passage right now. 
First Chronicles chapter 17, and notice what is going to be said here. I believe it is the heart or the key to First Chronicles in verse chapter 17 and verse 12. He shall build me a house. I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him. As I look, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. Who's this book written to? Is a great question you always want to ask whenever you look at any of the book of the Bible. Who is the original audience? Who is the original speaker? Who's the original audience? What were the original circumstances? This is a huge key to open up the heart of any passage of the Bible. And we're not really sure who wrote it. Perhaps Ezra was the one who wrote this. But the, the book was written to the children of Judah, children of Israel, who are in exile, in Babylonian exile. Well, we believe that the, the other historical books were written to them too, but written at a different time. And this kind of gets at the heart of the question that we have. Why do we have two books in the Bible, or a series of books in the Bible, in our English Bibles, that cover the same uh, amount of time? Well, the books of the kings are more raw, more negative. If you read them, you can see the author is using a negative view in order to stimulate repentance and to stimulate recognition for the reason that the people of God went into exile. And so the tone of the book is different, and it kind of like, it's raw, and it exposes the flaws more, uh, more candidly than the Chronicles. In Chronicles, the book of Chronicles is one book in, in, in originally and two books in our Bible. It's an idealized picture of David's monarchy as a, as a tract, as an encouragement to people. In other words, the one book is written to the people of God in exile saying, this is why you're here. This is why you're here. You need to repent. And they repent. And now he says, and this is what I'm calling you to do and you can do. And so there's, a, there's an encouragement. You see that in the tone of the book, even in the close of the first section of the book and the close of all of it. Uh, Riken writes, specific forms of documentary writing here in First Chronicles include genealogies, inventories, or lists. In other words, summaries of events, such as David's military victories. And we also find speeches and sermons and prayers and a psalm of praise and, and even kind of like miniature biographies. And they're all kind of wrapped into one book in order to stimulate obedience and, to, sti- and to, uh, to, to stimulate courage in people that are going to return and they're going to rebuild and they're going to rebuild the walls, they're going to rebuild the temple. God is going to use them in this way. And so this is the purpose of the book. I want to go through the flow of the book with you and I think this is a helpful way to look at it. So we're going to go over the whole book kind of fairly quickly. It'll take less than three hours. The list of genealogies is kind of lame humor, isn't it? The list of genealogies, of course, in chapters 1 through 9. And I think maybe the key passage, and we could sure debate about what is the key passage. If you want to study your Bible and you want to doubt me on this, that's cool with me. You figure out what you think the key passage is. The things that stood out to me, of course, in the genealogies here, in chapter 9, in verses 29 through 33, as they come uh, fairly uh, to a close, you have... Uh, in, in the genealogies, you have uh, some purposes that are established there. And you have, um, uh, you have, a, you have a, a kind of a glance at why God would have given so much detail here. I want to show you here a, a, a separate slide. And I want to go over why I believe that we have so many genealogies in the Bible and some reasons. First, to underscore God's perpetual faithfulness. Um, God... Repeatedly in the Bible, the Bible is written repeatedly reminding people of the multi-generational faithfulness is what God expects. 
And so it makes sense that there would be a tracking of the generations as God tracks the generations of faithfulness or of unfaithfulness in the Bible. This is to remind us that, or to underscore God's perpetual faithfulness to His people and to see the people as, as a people. So, so God wants His people to have an identity. He wants them to have this remember-who-you-are identity. And this would be the first of the reasons. Um, take your Bibles and, and look at Psalm 145 and verse 4, and we could go to dozens of places and show you this. This would just be one of them. Over and over again, there are promises in the Bible and, and, uh, and statements of expectation from God that our, our, our faithfulness would, would go from one generation to another. And this is something we should always have on our heart. Here's what Psalm 145 verse 4 says. By the way, Psalm 145 is a great psalm. You should read the whole thing. But for, for, for now, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Look at verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is the language of the Bible top to bottom, front to back. And that is that we never want to let go of the idea that the Christian faith isn't just for us to embrace for a generation, but it is for us to pass down to multiple generations. And the idea of having genealogies in the Bible is another emphasis of that. And that's why we've said it this way, to emphasize multi-generational faithfulness, to affirm the continuity of faith from generation to generation. Two reasons for genealogies. Here's another one. To affirm the importance of, to God of every individual. They're like individual people who are named in the genealogies. And of course, you know, you have uh, one here that's famous, the genealogies. The nine chapters of genealogies have this, this one little, uh, little um, cameo appearance of a guy named Jabez. And he's kind of popular and that's kind of famous. But it is to affirm the importance of, of, to God of every individual. Another reason for genealogies, I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating, is, that, is to remind us that it is not just philosophical talk or myths or legends, that they're not just like, for instance, like Aesop's fables. The Bible is not a collection of fables. But the Bible is real space and time history. There are different genres of literature in the Bible, but the Bible... Is, is about real space and time history and not moral fables. And genealogies prove that, really. There's also hidden theological meaning. When I say hidden, I don't mean that it's undiscoverable. I mean that it isn't always necessarily immediately apparent. And sometimes God reveals, as Revelation unfolds later in the Bible, there, there are comparisons. Sometimes genealogies are given comparisons. For instance, there's a section in Genesis where there's a genealogy of Esau and the genealogy of Jacob. And that's obviously a comparison between a pagan uh, man and a man who's a God follower. You have other examples of that. I have another theory, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to roll it out for you because I love you special. And it's this. As I think about this and I let my sanctified imagination kind of run away with me, I like to imagine there will come a time when we're with the Lord and He will open up the treasures of Scripture to us. Like, we make fun of it a little bit, and I, I poked fun just a little bit this morning. I said, you can skip chapters 1 through 9. I wonder if the angels winced when I said that today. I wonder if the Lord would say, oh, Ken, one day I will bring you to your knees when you see what chapters 1 through 9 meant. I'm confident that that is true. As a matter of fact, can you imagine if God in eternity would point back to the genealogy and say, you came from Him, and this is your history? Do you realize this is what happened because of that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? He can certainly do that. So let's, let's tremble when we pick up the Word of God and recognize that even the parts that may seem dry as sawdust to us is because of our finite human reasoning. This is the Word of the living God. 
students of the Scripture, scholars could spend a great deal of time studying these things. But these are some reasons why genealogies in the Bible. Is that helpful to you? Let's go back to our kind of basic outline of the flow of the book. We've already been over the list of genealogies, chapters 1 through 9. The next section is a transition from Saul's kingship to David's, and that's in chapters uh, 10 uh, through 12. It's significant, uh, really not so much what the writer always takes out but, uh, what he writes, but what he takes out and what he leaves in. Um, it's a clue to intent. Um, there you have uh, in chapters 18 through 20, also chapter 27, political interludes, military victories, appointments to military and civil positions that are kind of chronicled there. That might not be important as you read it to you. You might not think that's important. But do you ever, did you ever do this? When we're down in Canton, Kentucky, we sing on the square down there sometimes with the family. Those are some of our happiest times with the family. We go down there together, and the folks are so kind. They gather. We get to sing, and then we kind of mill around. We drink lemonade, and we eat barbecue. And ah, it just makes my mouth water to think about it. Anyway, uh, and then sometimes we'll walk over there by this wall in front of the, uh, in front of the uh, town hall, and Lois will walk over there, and she'll rub her hand on the wall and she'll say, Look here. Because her father served in the armed forces, his name is, is on the wall. That's for the average person. That's just a big list of names on the wall. But to my wife, that's her, that's her family name. That's her father. And she can go back there in that place where he spent so much of his time when he was alive. And she can point to his name and point it out to his grandchildren that never met him. And so a list is a list unless you're on it. Amen? And when you realize that God in his providence and his sovereignty and his work, the way he works with people, is that he's noticing every simple behind-the-scenes deed that people are doing, good and evil, really. And you have these political interludes that are, that are given here. Another section is in chapter 21 through 26, David's preparation for the temple. And of course, you know that David initially thought he had the idea himself. It was in his heart. It was implanted by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. He was given plans by the Holy Spirit, the detailed plans by the Holy Spirit. And he turned these plans over to his son. And God stirred his heart to do something. And of course, that's pregnant with, 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 uh, with meaning, isn't it? Have you ever had a desire to do something you will probably never accomplish? Young people, those of you here today, you're here with your folks, you're little people, and you're here with your mom and dad. Your mom and dad, you're going to listen to them talk. And you are going to sometimes be able to do the things that they wished they could have done. But because they were faithful to the Lord, because they serve the Lord, even though they weren't able to go some places that you're able to go and do some things that you're able to do, you will be able to stand on their shoulders and you will be able to do things that they only dreamed in their hearts. And this was true with David and with Solomon, that God, in God's mind, Solomon would do this. But, but in chapters 20, build the temple, that is. And you've got to understand, this is written to people who are a long way from the temple and a long way from the reality of the temple. This is going to be an amazing comeback victory. And so he says these are the plans, and they're laid out in chapters 21 through 26. Some beautiful passages that... Look at chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles here. In chapter 22, I would have you see um, just a, a bit of this. Chapter 22. Chapter 22 and verse 7. David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. 
Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper, and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. And then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. He's like, son, remember whose you are. God has called, put this in my heart, He's called you to do it. Be strong and of good courage. Keep the law. Obey God. God will use you to do that. The next section is uh, the final section, David's last days. There in chapters 28 uh, through 29. Turn your Bibles to chapter 28. Let's read just a bit of this. This is certainly worthwhile and rich reading. And so let's look at chapter 28 as this section of First Chronicles is coming uh, to a close. Again, in chapter 2, he says, chapter 28, verse 2, I had it in my heart to build a house for the rest of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build the house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. However, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever, for he has chosen Judah to be ruler. Verse 6. Your son Solomon shall build my house and my courts. I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever. Verse 7. If he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day. Look at verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek Him, you will be found by Him. If you forsake Him, He will cast you off forever. The study of this book coincided providentially with a lot of thinking that's been going on around here about the organization of our church. This is the week of the year that the Deacon Handbook is rolled out, and it shows the organizational structure of our church, the appointments of different people to different things, and how we try to organize things. And I kind of admired it because I didn't have anything to do with setting it up. I just kind of walked in and said, hey, this is a good program. And especially because organization isn't my, my strongest uh, gift myself. I feel like I'm an organized person, but I, it's not my spiritual gift. I admire those who are good at organization, who order the things of God in a good way. And it's the same way in this book. If you read this book carefully, you see this is the work of God, and it is a highly organized work. You, you have appointments of different people for different things they're doing, specific uh, useful things. And, you know, even, even the idea of thinking ahead and saying these people will live close because they're going to be there to open the doors in the morning. And they're always going to stand by to do that. It says that in the Word of God. It's a, it's, a, it's a holy calling to open the doors of the church. It's interesting. Uh, very interesting. There's, of course, a redemptive theme as in every book of the Bible. And in a few weeks, I'll show you where the Bible says five times Jesus says that he is the key to the understanding of every book of the Old Testament. Five times in the New Testament, Jesus says he is what the Old Testament is written about five times. I'll show you that later. But there is a redemptive theme here. You can see it very clearly in David as a symbol of Christ, in this book in particular. And Christ as the temple in the New Testament. 
Christ identifies himself with the temple in the New Testament, and this book is about the preparation of a people to go back and to rebuild the temple and to organize it so the worship of God goes on, and there are pictures of Christ in that. Let me give you some applications tonight. First, understand that God guides human history. Nations and people, they rise and fall. So you don't want to be discouraged. Application is that you would really not want to be discouraged when you see that sometimes you see that people are in power in places in the world who are not God-fearing people. And you think, what happens? You have a tendency to wring your hands and wonder what's going on. This is always the way it's been. It is not the way it always will be. But God guides history and God guides nations. And this is clear when you read a book like this. So you don't want to despair and you don't want to fall into disobedience because of discouragement. There are principles that are clear in this book that are generally true for all people for all time and we can absorb them. The second thing to notice here is that God holds leaders personally accountable. The actions of leaders affect the people of God, and God holds them accountable. You can see examples of this throughout the book. David, at one point, is moved by Satan to number the people in disobedience to the Lord. I don't know why for sure that's disobedience here, but it clearly is. Chapter 21, verse 1, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. David said to Joab, to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make His people a hundred times more than they are, but my Lord, the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should He be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the King's word prevailed against Joab, so he overlooked his counsel. Therefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. And all Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly. Because I've done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. Now God is going to hold David accountable. He's going to hold David responsible. David understands this, and his heart is tender before the Lord. Verse 10, God says to the seer, Gad, go tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. And Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself. We're going to see here is that God's going to give him a range of options to choose. It's very interesting to understand. Sometimes in our day that we perverted grace, here's the idea that we have. If I just quickly say, I'm sorry, that wipes out any repercussions from my sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. It's not true at all. You, you know it if you just think logically through. The, the, the result of our sin, even though it may be confessed and forgiven, may follow us. And they may be, they're going to be a part of God's providential working in our life but they're not going to necessarily go away. God may in His mercy and His providence remove some of the effects of those sins. He may not exact every... But the, but the results of those sins may go on and on. And with David, after... And this happens a number of times in David's life. He comes to confession and he comes to repentance and he's honest and he admits that he sinned against God. And then God says, okay, now that you've admitted that you've sinned, here's what's going to happen as a result of that. And I'm not going to be charged with unfaithfulness, God says, because it's going to be obvious. You're going to say, this is coming upon me because of my own sin. God is holding individuals responsible. He's holding individual leaders responsible. It's kind of interesting to read this because it tells us something about the nature of the character of God and David's relationship with God, his intimacy with God. This is something that David knew about God. Let's read on. 
Gad comes to David, verse 11, and says to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes or the sword of your enemies overtaking you or else three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land for the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David said to Gad, a beautiful answer, I think. I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. If you got any strength with God and men, you know what He's talking about right there. Right? Is there a man who's more merciful than our God? You should know the answer to that. Is there a man who is more merciful than our God? No. There is no man. There never has been and there never will be a man more merciful than our God nor more just or righteous in his judgments and what he does. And David knows this because he has intimacy with the Lord. And though he's failed and he's sinned against God, he says, I'm going to turn myself over. I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the Lord. Have you been there? Oh, I'll be a good place to go tonight. Probably a lot of us need to do that tonight. Tonight, before I go to bed, Lord, I just throw myself upon your mercy. I admit my sins and my failures. And I, I accept, Lord, what's coming to me. I ask you to strengthen me and work through me in that. There's a beautiful picture in that. And there's so much more to be said about that. But I want to kind of hasten on. God holds leaders accountable. Common men count. They matter. Genealogies and national history can turn on the faithfulness or the folly of one obscure individual. And God is actively, intimately involved in every one of their lives. If you were to look, we won't take time now, but in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, you've got that prayer of Jabez. Somebody says, should I pray the prayer of Jabez? Of course you should pray the prayer of Jabez. Why would God interrupt this nine chapters of genealogies with this one little kind of eye-catching, fascinating story of a guy praying and God answering his prayer if he didn't want to inspire us to pray like Jabez? Pray like Jabez, by all means. Jabez's prayer is not a rabbit's foot, a mystical rabbit's foot for you. That's not right. But pray that God would increase, that you would harm, would not harm others and that your sin wouldn't harm others, that God would increase your ability to serve Him. Yeah, that's a good prayer. Pray the prayer of Jabez by all means. That's why it's there. So you'd recognize that even if you're sitting in exile, long way away from where you should have been, and you've made really serious mistakes in your past, and there's rubble all around you, and you're a long way from home, you can still call on God, and God will answer that prayer, and God's blessing will be upon you. That's a wonderful prayer. I'm glad it's there. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. If you read, if you skip the genealogies, you missed that one. Then fourth, worship is important to God and to godly men and women. There's a lot of ways to worship. I want to focus a little bit about the temple worship and the things that are attendant to that. It is obvious that when you read this book, worship is important to God because you have all kinds of details that are given. I think it's fascinating in chapters 21 through 27, for instance, you have a census, preparation for the temple. You have divisions of Levites, divisions of priests, musicians, gatekeepers or ushers. And you have treasurers and treasuries and you have guards or military people. All this in order to organize the worship of God. It's serious business. It's highly organized. It's very involved. And it would require the skills of a lot of different kinds of people. It's not, not entirely unlike the, the local church in the New Testament time in our dispensation. But worship is important to God. Always has been. Always will be. It's important to godly men and godly women. Worship shouldn't be handled in some, kind of, some kind of perfunctory manner. Worship shouldn't be slipshod and half-hearted. 
Our service to the Lord should be organized. It should be honoring to the Lord. It should be decent. It should be in order. There's commitment involved. And I'd like for you to have gotten in on, uh, to, if we could have recorded some of our deacon training this weekend, it would have been encouraging for you. If you're here on Wednesday night, Pastor Dr. George Kuhn came on Friday night and he spoke to our deacons and their wives about what I spoke about on Wednesday night, kind of a revival of prayer, corporate prayer. He spoke about that. And that was a, a rich time. And, and, and in the morning then, each of us as pastors had a chunk of training of, and encouragement for the deacons. Um, I wish I could have recorded uh, Pastor Pine's talk because we talked him into giving an autobiographical sketch of what it looked like to grow up in a deacon's home. And it was a, a, it was a, it was a holy moment. As he just told, and, and we kind of talked him into telling personal stories about what it was like to grow up in... How would you like to hear that talk? Raise your hand. Yep. Okay. So we'll get you all scheduled up for that, and you'll have to do that one again. But it was such a, a touching thing to hear, the little pictures of little little Kenny Pine pedaling his bike to Wrigley Field Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday, but driving past on Sunday, because that was the Lord. Pretty cool stories, and I want you to hear that. Pastor Discerns was uh, teaching about how to integrate a very powerful tool that we have, the ABF and the ministry of a deacon. And you'll see in the time to come that we're going to give a greater emphasis to the ABF. And here's why. I believe that there, there is nothing that can replace the public preaching of God's Word, public worship and corporate worship. But where do you do the one another's that the Bible commands? Where do you do those? You do those in your daily life. There should be a place in, in, in church life where you, you live out the one another's. And I, I see it happening. But the ABFs are a special atmosphere in order to stimulate that. But I'm kind of off track. Worship is important to God. And godly men and women love worship. It's important to them too. And this is one of the applications of this book. It's very, very important. And then the heartbeat of Chronicles is God's concern for the spiritual vitality of His people. And that should be obvious. It's interesting because... If you think about it, here you have the Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles, we call them, but we have historical books about God's people. They go back over history and they talk about people and what people did to worship God. Did they have sports back then? If they did, it's not news. It, it's like it's not in there. It doesn't say who won the championship. It's not in there. It's interesting. I like sports. I, I probably like sports as much as anybody. But it's interesting. That's not in there. You know, who sold what on eBay, and that's, that's not in there. Your favorite shade of makeup, it's, it's not in there. It's not. You know, all the kind of stuff that kind of preoccupies our lives and isn't necessarily evil in and of itself, that's not news to God. It, the thing that's kind of news to God is the, it's the God-centeredness of history here. It's the, it's the worship of God, the spiritual vitality of people. That is what news, that's news. What's happening with God's people and in God's economy and the way that God looks at Whole chunks of our life, if you go out into secular culture, whole chunks of our life are trying desperately to ignore God as hard as they can. They're trying to ignore. They cannot, but they're trying. And they have all kinds of fanciful, fanciful, philosophical footwork that they're trying to do in order to live as if there was no God. But God is the very crux, the very center of all of human history and all of human life. Whatever. God says this news, that's news. And when you read back over something like this, you see what was important to God was interesting. It was what was going on with God's people. What is the state of the people of God? 
And there was a time in little periods of revival in human history, and there's one that I always kind of fantasize about, I think about, read about. It's interesting to me. It's focused on, say, Victorian England, when Charles Spurgeon preached in Victorian England. And his messages came out, and they were like, they weren't broadcast, obviously. They were printed and distributed and around the, literally around the world, and especially in all of the English-speaking world, people would just kind of wait and hang on that and say, what did he have to say yesterday? What did the pastors have to say? What did, what, what's the news about missions and about God and about the progress of missions? That's, what, that's really news. That's very obvious when you read a book like this. Hey, one night, uh, many years ago, uh, a number of years ago, in the character in what we were the little hotel the hotel that we were uh, involved in there the Christian ministry it was housed in a hotel in Flint there, we had a man come and speak his name was John Walsh I'd like to have him come here sometime interesting guy um, he wrote a book and the book is on Christian storytelling and uh, he was with us and doing some training and some of our young people the young people in the character in used to love to go downstairs in the evening and play volleyball. If you came into Character Inn, you got good at volleyball. There wasn't anything else to do in terms of sports. It was volleyball in the ballroom. And they had a special deal to rig it up with a net so we wouldn't break out the tiles in the ceiling. And they would go at it. And it got so they would be extremely good at volleyball, dangerously good at volleyball. And uh, they would just go at it. And you could tell the, the, the students, if, you wanted, if I wanted to manipulate, I mean, if I wanted to encourage them to do something like wash the dishes after the banquet, I would just say, hey, as soon as we get the dishes washed, we're going to roll out the volleyball nets. And you, would not be- you just wouldn't believe the dishes that those kids could wash because they were ready to, that was their social life, that was, that was everything. So they would come up volleyball. But one night there, they were playing volleyball, and we had this guy, John Walsh, and in there, and, and he was a, a guest speaker, and a, and a thought occurred to me that we really ought to have a telling by the fireplace, because we have this master storyteller guy, and we ought to gather everybody in the house down by the fireplace and let this guy do what he does. And they would groan at first, but they would thank me for it later. That's exactly how, I could have scripted it like that. So I'd go in, and i like blow the whistle, and say, okay, guys, no volleyball right now. They're like, are you serious? You know, I'm like, let's take a little break, and for about an hour, let's go and sit around the fire. John Walsh is here. He's a master storyteller, and I want you to experience a telling tonight. So out we went to the fireplace, and he did what he does. Just very gifted, telling Bible stories and other stories, spiritual nature. Told these stories, and everybody was just lit. It was like you could hear a pin drop while they told the stories. <laughs> so when it was all over, we dismissed everybody, had a word of prayer. They went back to playing volleyball into the night. John and I went to my study. We sat down and talked, and I picked his brain about storytelling. Tell me something I have never forgotten. I don't think you will either. He said that they discovered in the killing fields in Cambodia that they were trying to wipe out a whole culture of people. They're trying to bring a whole culture of people to an end, literally physically killing as many of them as they could possibly kill. And they also wanted to decimate their culture altogether. They wanted to rob them of their culture altogether. So they would separate them from their families, from their siblings, their parents, from their grandparents. If they weren't, they weren't killed, they were certainly separated from their villages and from their people. And perhaps you've read through the horror of the killing fields in Cambodia. John Walt said that the Cambodian people would say after that, that the most violent thing that they did to them is they robbed them of their family story. Because when you take away the story of a people, 
You take away the culture altogether. You, you take away the people altogether. And God is going to make sure that doesn't happen to us because He always wants us to remember who we are. Because as long as we remember who we are, then we can go back and rebuild the waste places and we can do exploits for God. But if we forget who we are, we're in critical condition. Pastor, would you close our service?